Hello, listeners. I know it's been a while since I last released an episode, but I think everybody can understand that we've all been a little busy. I thought I'd come on and do an episode of what I think, based on my research and years of study, the Battle of Kiev will look like. From what are the military strategies that could be used by Russia, the tactics, some of the things we might see, we have seen, what will become important, and what are the analogies in history which can help us think about what's going to happen. Well, enjoy the show. You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. So on February 24th, 2022, Russia invaded Ukraine. From the onset, I knew that there is only one objective. All war is politics by other means, meaning the only and first primary goal of Putin and the Russian military from day one has been the removal of the current government and the emplacing of a new. Cities are always been the economic and political powers of nations. They are the objective, no different in the Battle of Ukraine. The President Zelensky stayed in Ukraine and has chosen the capital to be the place where he stays. So pretty straightforward that Kyiv is the decisive objective for Russia. That achieves the strategic objective and the only thing that matters. And to be frank, the only thing I've seen since day one has been about Kyiv. And it has only been urban. There's many reasons for that. But what will it look like to take it? And what have we seen so far? So going into the almost third week, we've seen Russia struggle, right? Everybody knows that. We saw Russia come in, invade Ukraine, and try basically a 2003 Iraq invasion by the coalition. Step one, bombing. We called it the shock and awe during the raid into or the attack into Iraq taking out all enemy communications, especially step one of any invasion is to take out the nation's air defense capabilities, gain air superiority and air supremacy. And that's what we saw on day one with the bombings, taking out the airfields, taking out any ADA system that was visible. And then just like in 2003, Russia attempted the rapid movement of forces. He traded space for time. Headed for Kiev. He attempted to take an airfield right outside a location of Kiev, and that airfield would have given him the, the ability to project power into Kiev and take it rapidly and, and possibly penetrate all the way to the enemy's center fast. We've known for, for this entire time that the decisive operation, the main effort, the main body that Putin wanted to take Kiev came was coming out of the north, out of the Belarus route, into the south. That's the convoy that's been stuck. That's the convoy that's been attacked. That's the convoy we're all talking about. It has been the main objective. But let's fast forward till now. What are we seeing? We continue to see the bombing of cities. We see sieging of cities like Mariupol. All these are straightforward in the strategy. There are many strategies to achieve Russia's strategic goal, right? Take out the government either by physically taking it Kiev by penetrating deep into it and getting Zelensky or forcing Zelensky to give up, 
come to the political table and say, enough, enough is enough. It caused too much pain. I, I, I surrender or flee. So there's many ways the objective could be done. The bombings that we're seeing so far, I, the, all the bombings to me have a one purpose to assist in the operation of taking key, achieving the strategic goal. And that to include the forces and all the routes, all the forces in the eastern side of the country are meant for a purpose, for something to do with the main objective, possibly to keep the entire eastern Ukrainian forces away from Kiev. So that could be, be a, the overall operational plan. It sure looks like it. All strikes are for what they view as enemy targets. To be fair, if Ukrainian military are using a building for anything, technically that turns whatever the building is into about a, a target that can be struck. And that's the argument that Russia will use. There's a problem with that. This, even when that happens, even when a protected site such as a mosque, a school, a hospital is being used for military purpose, that doesn't give up the law of armed conflicts responsibilities to protect civilians. And there are many ways to do that. Hopefully, the War Crimes Commission, the the Hague, the ICC, what you name it, looks into every strike and ensures and says whether they had military necessity, proportionality, thing steps to, to limit civilian casualties. But just for the urban operations perspective, those are softening targets. Those are taking out enemy locations. Those are causing the... If you're the Russians, the enemy to have to commit forces to help, such as committing Ukrainian forces to help with humanitarian relief, to help with the corridors that are being set up. It all is in point of the one objective, the one urban objective. Now, let's talk about a city attack. Let's talk about the overall military strategy and taking of Kiev, achieving the strategic goal. So step one of that, step one of any of of this, a city of attack, a historical city attack is to bomb it. Let's be frank. You bomb any and every enemy location you can see. You start off with like enemy communications, like antennas that allow people in the city to communicate with each other or communicate with forces that are in different locations, like additional forces that can come rescue. Then you take out military weapons, airfields, air defense, all of that so you can do your ground operation in support of this joint, we call it joint, ground, air, sea, cyber, joint operation to take the city. So if step one is the bombing, to achieve those kind of degrade the defender's ability to defend, step two is to isolate it. And that's what we see now. We see isolation physically by putting forces around the city, Right. We have armor columns moving into the east, armor columns moving into the west, forces moving down, trying to move down from Sumy, from Kharkiv, trying to move away from the cities they're being held into, which is great because they have to commit forces to fights as well. Moving out of those cities, moving towards the capital to isolate it. You can call, you could say encircle it, you could call siege it, but they need to isolate it. Isolation in its step two of a city attack. They want to cut it off from the ability to be resupplied, which will come in key, and reinforced. So that stop it from being able to be saved. And that's what I think some of the strikes in the east are about, right? 
They're striking locations far east that they can't get to, but they can get to with missiles, striking what they will say were enemy personnel in that area, striking what they say enemy supplies were in that area, trying to cut off the supplies, which, to be frank, are extremely helping the Ukrainian ability to fight right now. All the flow, all the stuff being flowed in from west to east into Ukraine, into Kiev. They want to isolate that by fires, attacking it, causing chaos. Again, more humanitarian crisis that pulls Ukrainian fighters away to do that. So step two is isolate, either physically or with fires. Now, that doesn't mean they need to surround this city and cover every street with forces, right? It's just not physically possible. Kiev is a huge city. It would not be possible. If you think about the Battle of Mosul in 2016 to 2017, 100,000 forces surrounded that city. It didn't totally isolate. It's near impossible, but they just need to cut off all of those major routes of resupply or resupport. So that's really step two-ish is to isolate it. And you see that happening. It's happening more and more. Now, the next phase is, unfortunately, to bomb it some more. And I'm talking about bomb it to soften it before attempting to go in it, which is what has to happen once you surround it. They need to start bombing everything. And I don't mean flatten it. They can't carpet bombing. That just won't achieve the goal. They have to strike any known enemy location. And to be frank, that's what militaries do. If it's a known enemy target, they're going to fire at it with everything they got. And some of the stuff they got the most is artillery. And I think this one comes into the kind of the, what would the Battle of Kiev look like historically? What urban battle would me and my my close partner, Major Jason Giroux, who we write all the case studies for at the Modern War Institute, what is it most like, right? So everybody keeps talking about the Battle of Grozny, right? The 1994 first Battle of Grozny during the Chechen Wars, because it's the closest analogy we have, like, okay, they're going to do like Grozny. Well, let's be clear about all these, all these scenarios. Context does matter. And that's why we do our quick case studies to kind of give out the key facts of the battle, right? So the battle of Grozny was a two week battle, right? 2000 to 12,000 fighters inside. I know that's a big range. It's what happens in history. We really don't know. The Russians came in as in were allowed to go all the way into the center of the city. And the city was small. Let's put context. Grozny, around 270,000 people, they went inside of it. They got they got ate up really bad by the Chechen fighters inside the city who were ready. The Russians thought it would just be a cakewalk. They'd show a force, come in with a large force, and they were hit. And they were hit with ambushes, like anti-armor ambushes of small teams of a sniper and an anti-tank gunner, a rifleman, a machine gun guy. Like little groups of three to five, and they just moved around and uh, shot the first tank, shot the last vehicle, trapped them, moved, hit them again, and really ate them up. And through this fighting, the Russians only lost about 2,000, right? So you got to remember that context when you think, think about, oh, this would be like Grozny. Now, what everybody says about Grozny is that they, the Russians just backed up and just flattened it. Well, that's not necessarily true. Uh, they still had fighting. They still had the close fight. And they still went in. Yes, did they fire on it like they're going to Kiev, right? So they started off around 3,000 artillery rounds a day. And then as the fighting went on, it got harder, and they increased the artillery. And at one point, they got up to 30,000 rounds a day. Now, if you do the math, that's about 
one round every 30 seconds or so, one artillery round, because artillery is a pretty accurate but pretty large explosion that you have a lot of and you can bring a lot of. So the point of that is um, the context matters. And even in that situation, they still, you know, the estimates of civilian casualties are just as hard to estimate as what fighters were in there. Estimated 27,000 to 40, 50,000 civilians killed. I mean, it was a bad battle, but I just don't know if that's the right analogy I would use to say, what will Kiev look like? Now, we know it won't look like the Battle of Baghdad, right? So that was what they thought it would be. Russians thought they would fight the Battle of Baghdad, which is the 2003 invasion. I was a part of that operation. I jumped into the north. The only reason I jumped into the north with a parachute unit was to keep the units that are north of Baghdad away from the battle. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? So if you think about the forces that are all around the Ukraine fighting battles for a certain reason, one reason could be to keep those forces away from the main fight. And that's what I did when I jumped in in 2003. My parachute unit of about 1,000 paratroopers jumped into the north, moved a little south, engaged a heavy armored division that was in the north, only not to defeat it, but just keep it out of the main fight, the strategic goal, Baghdad. So the Battle of Baghdad lasted nine days. And for many reasons, long story, it was basically not defended. A, a single tank regiment was basically the main effort, penetrated into the city, drove to the middle, said, we own it. Stuff started falling apart. I know that's a you know, one my friend, Dr. Jacob Stoy, will, will, will really get me for my brief, but not as defined aspects of history, but I think it's important on the context that we use. So do I think it'll look like the Battle of Baghdad? Of course not. Too late for that. That was about the first two days that could have happened. Russia showed they couldn't do it. But what else could it look like? Battle of Grozny. Again, I just don't think so. Yes, there'll be aspects, the bombing. But I actually think based on this point of the battle, this point of the war, based on how much time Russia has given the Ukrainians, and it's not, let's be clear, Kiev right now is being defended not by a bunch of civilians. Yes, huge amounts of civilians are involved in the battle. But there are strongly trained Ukrainian military, the reserves or the territorial defense, and the additional civilians that were basically called to action and are showing the will to fight. I don't even know how many is in there. But if you think about those numbers, right, think about the historical numbers of battles and how many fighters are inside of it. That's what matters as much as the terrain, as much as what Russia brings. So let's talk about numbers, right? So you probably heard me say in the news, my loose translation of what we call force ratios or what it takes. You know, I'll say it takes five attackers to one defender. Yes, my friend, my close friend, uh, Major Jason Drew is going to get me on that. Like, okay, we all know one numbers are hard. Uh, what, what U.S. Army doctrine says today is that Conducting an operation in urban terrain, you need three to five times more troops than you would in any other terrain to do that operation. So in this would be attack. So in order to attack urban terrain, you're supposed to have three to five time forces you would in a normal operation. I still think generally we say you want to have three fighters to one enemy fighter. And we say you want to have five to one defender. So let's run the numbers. Do we think that Russia has what it takes? Absolutely not. And why? I'll tell you why. 
So the battles I think this is going to turn out to be, what it's most like is more historical World War II battles. When the defender had time to defend, even in Chechnya, even in some Baghdad, again, not defended. This is a city, a very large city, with thousands and thousands and thousands of fighters prepared to defend. Now, what in history reminds us of that? Well, number one comes to mind is the greatest urban battle of modern history, Stalingrad, right? 1943, two major armies collide, right? One had time to get inside, but even then, it was bombed. And when I talk about bombed, it was bombed. One, so the Luftwaffe bombed it for days and days and days. At one point, they flew 1,600 sorties in a single day, dropping a ton of ammunition. I mean, that's insane. That's the level of bombing I think this type of city attack would could see. And let us care. What happens when you bomb a city like that? You actually cause yourself a lot more trouble than you think you do, right? You're attempting to soften the objective, soften the enemy, trying to kill the enemy so you can just move forward and clear what's left. Well, they created so much rubble, the Luftwaffe did in that bombing, that they couldn't bring in the tanks. And we'll talk about tanks in a minute, about you can't. no smart man goes into a fight like this without tanks, without armor. And we'll talk about why. So the Battle of Stalingrad, six months, intense fighting in every aspect. And I'm talking about insane fighting of forces close to each other. Because once you rubbleize the city like this, you have to go in there and pry out the defenders. And how many defenders? Millions. Now, there's large estimates of what was involved, hundreds of thousands versus what was on the entire front of Stalingrad. No matter what way you look at it, it was thousands. And I'm talking hundreds of thousands against hundreds of thousands. That's why I personally say that you can never repeat a Stalingrad because we just don't have the men. No army has that size of army. Anyways, but battles like the battle individual fights in the city that turn into major battles. One example that I talk about, a single unit, a single individual team can hold a strong point or a really strong building. There was one, one building called Pavlo's House. And they called Pavlo's House. is actually an apartment complex, a very long apartment building in a courtyard that had long lines of sight so it could see out of the building for long ways. Well, one junior NCO, non-commissioned officer, and around 20 soldiers held that single house for 58 days against what's equivalent to regiment or higher level attacks. I'm talking tanks, infantry, bombing. They held the single house. And it's insane, but that's the level of fighting you can be. They put machine guns in the windows. They sandbagged bunkers. If they got bombed, they moved to the cellar. If a tank came up, they moved to the higher levels and dropped rifle grenades on top of them. They had wire around the building. They had anti-tank mines. They had anti-personnel mines. And they turned that single house, single apartment building, into a 58-day battle. They held them off for 58 days. And they never were taken. They actually withdrew. That's insane. And I think that's the level. Another battle, 1945 Manila. U.S coalition u.s forces liberating manila four weeks it took and the same thing the japanese prepared the defense they set up giant barriers they put pillboxes made of concrete they put caches in the tunnels 
They defended single buildings as in the building was the battlefield that they prepared inside the building. One of those being Rizal Hall, which was a treasury building, which is interesting in history. These large buildings, you know, these heavy steel reinforced concrete buildings, sometimes massive, become really important because they can they can be defended. They're strong points. Rizal Hall, <clears throat> a whole battalion of U.S. forces had to attack it. Inside, they found literally bunkers within the building and they couldn't do anything about it. And then they had basically a fight inside, the, a battle inside the building for the building to include snipers at one end of the building that could fire through the building and hit people inside the building. It's just insane. Again, 1945 Battle of Berlin. I think it's all, these are all the battles I think that are important. So the bombing is going to take place. Now, what happens to bo- when in bombing? The, the defenders had to survive the bombing and wait to, for the people that come in closer, right? So what's really different about Kiev is the extensive underground network it has. And I'm talking 15, if not more, I've heard 80, just kilometer after kilometer after kilometer of underground. And when I mean underground, I mean deep underground from ancient catacombs to modern metros, subways, water tunnels. It's all open source information. It's huge. What does that give a defender? It gives a defender the ability to survive bombing. And I mean, a long time. I mean, just like the 1940 Blitz in London. They're in the tunnels. Same photos we're seeing today. They survived the bombing. Matter of fact, it doesn't um, demoralize. It actually emboldens the defenders to survive. So that's one of the reasons why it'll be harder. So the air contest is huge. I still think this is a part of the, the, the overall battle of Kiev is the contested air and why President Zelensky keeps asking for air defense, and I understand why. So if the Ukrainians lost airspace, which would have been step one of the invasion, which will be should have been step one of taking Kiev, is still contested, which is great. One of the reasons it's still contested is because of stingers. So stingers are really accurate ground-to-air missiles. What's, but what's more important is that they're man pads, man portable systems. That means you can carry them around, hide them, stick them underground, protect them from bombing, and then pop out wherever you want and take down jets, helicopters, anything else in the air. That's very scary to a military. But if, if the Ukrainians lost the airspace, here's what would happen. A Stalingrad type of bombing, right? So the only way you bomb a city with a thousand six hundred sorties a day is you own the sky. If you don't, then you don't do that. You can still bomb it from far away, but you don't easily bomb it. <clears throat> what else does the air give you? If you're the attacker, it gives you the ability to again isolate through fires, right? So you can isolate places you can't be, but you can keep people away or keep things in. It allows you to maneuver forces, as in pick up a unit, a force of people, and drop it somewhere, even inside the city if you own the air. As long as the air is contested, he can't do that. And I think that's why it's so important. So what are the military strategies and tactics for taking a city, right? The classic U.S. Army doctrinal deliberate attack is surround the city, penetrate it, as in punch a hole into it and what seize what we call a foothold, which would mean grab a section of the city, a building, a block, an a, a industrial park, something Grab it, and that's what you're going to flow your forces through. It's called a, uh, a foothold. And then you start clearing. It's not the only way, 
That's one of the classic ways. Another way is what we call the raise your flag, which I think is a very serious way that could happen in a battle keep. Raise your flag is same thing. Isolate, <coughs> bomb it, uh, start fake a penetration. So you may approach from the east and the west at the same time, but the majority of your force is actually in one, but you're trying to fool the people inside where the attack is coming from. And then kind of like the 2004 second battle of Fallujah, you don't penetrate and secure a foothold and then start clearing. You have such a powerful force and the ability to secure it that you penetrate all the way to the center of the city, turn around and let the attackers come out of their hiding spots and attack you here. Why is urban warfare so hard? Why is attacking a city so hard? We call it the great equalizer. And yes, I have friends in this field who will say, John, come on, you know, that's not true. Yes. It, it's, I'll use the great equalizer because it's easy to help people understand. Why is it called the great equalizer? As soon as the military closes the distance, like it has to, and enters the urban terrain, it's giving up some of its power. And what do I mean by power? A modern military is so powerful because of its fires, because of its long-range fires, ability to, go, to hit the enemy as far away as possible, not close the distance and have a basically a hand-to-hand -hand fight with them. It's to hit them as far away as possible with your superior satellite imagery, your superior drones, and all that to to know where to strike with your artillery, with your missiles, with your hellfires. Once you enter the urban terrain, that becomes a lot harder, right? Because you can't see. The analogy I use is you basically enter the city, close your eyes, and start walking down the streets until somebody hits you in the face or shoots at you. As soon as they shoot at you, yes, then you know where they are. Yes. Then you can, if they're in a building, say, okay, I'm on, there he is. Back up. Blow that building up. Got it. My good friend Amos Fox would call that the precision paradox, right? So an urban train, even if you do that, walk down the street, get punched in the face, take a couple of shots. Okay, they're in that building. Back it up. Call for fire. It takes a little bit of time. Hit, Drop that building with a 2,000-pound bomb. Guess what the enemy can do? He can... Dig a tunnel between the building he's shooting at you from, go to the next building. So go in a tunnel from that building underneath to the next building. That's called the precision paradox because you just dropped the fire, precisely hit that building. It didn't have the effect on the enemy as in he survived the hit because he's in such a strong building or he just moved. <clears throat> it took you so long. So now you're going down the block and now I hit the next building. That's the precision paradox where you're basically just hitting every building as you're walking down the street. Again, the great equalizer is because it gives away the military's strength. What else does it do? Most militaries believe in what's called combined arms maneuver. That's their power coming out of the blitzkrieg of really World War I into World War II. The combination of tanks, airplanes, radio, infantry, rapid penetration. That's called the blitzkrieg. Uh, modern militaries do combined arms maneuver. Well, what's really hard to do in canalizing urban terrain? Maneuver. Maneuver means firing and moving at the same time. Mobility means just moving around. When a dense urban train, it's really hard to maneuver on somebody because you're stuck to the streets. Urban train canalizes and does what the military exactly doesn't want. It forces them down a single road. It forces them to bunch up together, which then they can be attacked easily. That's not the military way. So that's those are some of the reasons. Of course, then there's the snipers. There's the fact that ambushes because you don't know where the enemy is the defender gets to decide when to shoot he gets to define 
he gets to decide if he does it right where you go uh, because of what can be done to the train. And that's why it's called the great equalizer. So you could do this other one, right? The raise the flag, which is sec- second battle of Fallujah 2004. This is what the Americans did. Surround the city, attempt to penetrate it, fake a penetration on one edge of the city. So in that battle, they faked the penetration and did lots of things to make the enemy believe that the, the attack was coming from the south north, but then they actually came from north to south. And when they did, again, they punched a hole through the enemy defenses, which they had prepared, punched a hole all the way through, got to the middle of the city, turned around into a defensive position, and had the then the attacker has to attack you and then gives up. See, so the defense is called the strongest form of war for a reason. Of course, it's the strongest form of tactical action if you stand in a bunker and shoot at somebody and they have to cross open area to get to you. Or in the urban train, you're in a really hard, strong building. They're on the middle of the street and they have to attack forward to get to you. So it makes common sense at the tactical operational level that urban train is the strongest form of defense. And I strongly believe that. So let's talk about anti-tank guided munitions. Why are they so important? Why do we keep talking about them in this battle of key? One, so in order to effectively penetrate a defense, an urban defense, you have to have armor. Why? Armor is protecting you. So it'd be like walking down that street with your eyes closed, but wearing a helmet, right? So when you get punched in the head, you don't even feel it. That's a tank. So tank gives you the protection to move down the street and take whatever hits you. What does it also do? It gives you the ability to penetrate concrete. So that 120 millimeter round or higher, depending on what tank it is, or lower, um, can punch through concrete walls. So that's the bunker, right? So that's the person defending. It, it's really real. Why militaries don't like urban terrain, again, is that most of the weapons that a soldier carries can't penetrate concrete. And that's why I'm so adamant, like, stop using sandbags. Sandbags stop bullets, very small bullets. They won't stop a lot of bigger bullets. Matter of fact, a machine gun can get through a sandbag. You know what stops a lot of bullets? Concrete. So the tank is used to penetrate a building, especially if you go to, you know the fighter's there, you haven't, you're too close, and that's called hugging. When the enemy brings you into urban training, brings you so close to them that you can't fire on them immediately because if you did, you'd kill your own soldiers. That's called hugging. Uh, and that's a, a really good tactic in urban warfare. So you have to rely on the weapons you have. And tank can punch through some walls. So no man goes in urban train without a tank. But what's what else is wrong with the tank? A tank is very vulnerable. So a tank can't shoot above, depending on where, where it's standing next to a building, like the third floor. It, it, it all depends on, you know, it could just back up and, and it could shoot higher. It can't also shoot down. It can't shoot like to the cellars or to the first level of the floor. By themselves, tanks are very vulnerable. So usually we say, you know, urban warfare is not an infantry fight because the infantry walking down the street gets punched in the face. He's dead. He gets hit by a sniper. He's dead. The tank is his helmet. The tank is the protection. But the wrong, the, the tank is vulnerable, right? The tanks, you can fire, really, to be honest, we lost, the United States lost a bunch of tanks in the second battle of Fallujah, not because of the, anything penetrated, it's because volley fire RPGs that can't penetrate the armor of a ta- M1 tank fired at the critical points where you could see out of it and you just couldn't see to drive. But anyways, a tank is vulnerable to a lot of things, and that's why he has to have infantry 
So urban warfare is not a tank fight. Urban warfare is not an infantry fight. It's a combined arms, a joint combined arms fight, right? You need the bombing. You need the tanks with the infantry, with engineers to clear your obstacles that get in place in the defense. You need it all. So why are our HEMs so important? You can't penetrate urban terrain without a tank, period. So what's the number one counter to that? Weapons that take out tanks. What's the most powerful weapon on the modern battlefield to take out a tank? That is man-portable, can be hidden in urban terrain, can reach out and hit a tank two miles away or closer? A javelin. So what's so important about a javelin is that a javelin is a modern anti-tank guided munition that is fire forget that can penetrate any amount of armor on the battlefield. One of the reasons is because the javelin, much like the in-law, is a top attack. What does that mean? It means when a gunner fires the javelin, it goes up in the sky and then comes down on top of the tank because tanks on the top are very vulnerable. Most of their heavy armor is underneath or on the sides, front, back. At the top, you know, where the, the turret is, where the hatches are that the gunner, you know, they go in and out of, very vulnerable, very thin. Because in tank battles, usually you tanks are made for tanks, just so everybody knows. They're not made for battles or combat. A tank against a tank, they're going to be fighting straight on, you know, firing straight at each other. And, and that's why what tanks were used for in trench warfare, across the dead man zone, and then they evolved to tank on tank battles. Anyways, a javelin is a top attack, comes down on top. In-law, top attack. But what's more important for urban is that they can be hidden all throughout the urban terrain. And again, if you have to have a tank to penetrate, then take the tanks away, and the problem becomes tenfold. Not saying that's what's going to happen. I just I think that's what's going to happen when Russia starts the battle of Kiev. There's going to be a lot of tanks burning. That's just a fact. That's what you do to keep them from achieving their goal, which is to penetrate into okay now let's talk about other strategies there is more than one way to take a city and to do this goal right is it key does not have to be surrounded it does not have to be cleared every building does not have to be cleared in the battle of key that's not the goal right it's not to take out every enemy fighter matter of fact russians don't have to kill all their ukrainian military again the goal is the only goal the strategic goal once it happens basically the war is over is to get to the middle of key Take out the government, raise the Russian flag, and, and steal the government. Now, it gives you a good question of what does winning look like? Yes. If you ask me today, if that happens tomorrow, God forbid, oh, two days from now, three days from now, yes, Russia will face the biggest urban insurgency in history. That's proven with the the will of the Ukrainian people. Even if they get, <clears throat> if they lose that aspect of the war, uh, the urban insurgency starts. So is that winning for Russia if it fights this? country-wide urban insurgency? No. I don't think, again, based on the force ratios of these different strategies, do we believe that Russia has what it takes? It's bringing what it thinks it it needs. We see the armor columns. We see the MLRS, the multiple launch rocket systems, which are those thermobaric, that have the ability to have the thermobaric weapons, which are the ones that suck the oxygen out and put flame in. They're very scary. Large artillery rounds, 155 and higher. We see all that coming. Those are the things you would need to take a city. 
But there's that number, right? The number that I told you about is important. Stalin said quantity does have its own quality. So even if they're cannon fodder, a lot of cannon fodder, what does that mean? That means you expend more ammo. We say, and in some people's doctrine, it says you take four times the amount of ammo fighting an urban fight than you do fighting the same type of battle in a different terrain. So both sides need four times the amount of ammo. So if you use cannon fodder to be, to be not to be blunt, but you know, why does the 16,000 or plus Syrians possibly come into, into the Ukrainian war or the large amounts of possible Russian mercenaries or private military contractors like the Wagner group? Why does that matter? As an urban warfare specialist, it matters to me because that adds forces. It adds to the troop numbers. It adds to that three to five times more do you need for this fight. Some of those may be urban hardened fighters from Syria. They could come from other parts, as some of my friends told me about. Either way, it's concerning. Now, Russia's already showing a very loose ability to follow the laws of armed, con the laws of armed conflict. And would adding these people help that? I highly doubt that. So, the other ways to take the city. So, I just got back last year, thanks to my good friend Rusev, going into Nagorno-Karabakh, the contested area between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Large war was fought there. It's to be studied. Lots of use of artillery, tank battles, lots of killer drones. I went there. Because very similar to this war, the only thing that mattered to me was the decisive battle. The one city that mattered, which was the city of Susha in that war. And once that city fell, the war ended. Because it was the strategic objective of Azerbaijan, as stated by the president. Well, how did they take that city? Totally different context. Totally different scale. Got it. Just know that they infiltrated the city. So a very large joint special forces task force infiltrated the city as I mean they snuck into the city think about like trojan war stuff they climbed some cliffs my climb i mean walked up but it's still a really crazy looking cliff as i stood over it infiltrated and got inside the defense um and surprised the defenders and again hugged them so they couldn't use a lot of their, de their defense and they went house to house and had this major battle and had atgms <clears throat> so just the point is you know, there are many ways in which the Battle of Kiev could happen. One of these could be an attempted infiltration. That's why, really, you have to have a, what we call a def defense in depth. You have to have small elements all around the city who can also uh, flex. We have, we have these principles of the defense in Army Doctrine, and one of them is flexibility. So if you're defending urban terrain, you have to have the flexibility to, once you identify if they're trying to penetrate, where, to, where are the, the places they're trying to penetrate? Where's the main penetration those are the things that you would want to know. Well, in infiltration, again, you have to have the flexibility to respond and prevent an infiltration. Kiev is big. Could it be infiltrated? I think so. I mean, you could take, whether it's the water, coming up the water, whatever, you, know, you name it. There's, there's ways it could be done. And that's why in the, we say in the defense, you never stop preparing the defense. So that's one of the other ways, something to watch out for. In summary... Again, what do I think will happen in the Battle of Kiev? It will look like more of a World War II battle if Russia continues forward and doubles down. Uh, but now you have a, should have a better sense of what it would take. I think we'll see historic level of bombing. I, I do. 
I mean, they don't have the ammo to do a Stalingrad, to be honest. I didn't even know if they had the, the, the ammo, as in what they're bringing with them, what they can launch from ships and planes and mainly like artillery. I don't even think Russia has the ammo it would take to reduce Kiev's defenders, especially if they can go underground and, and survive the bombing, reduce them down enough to push forces in. The forces had to get in. If they could do that, and then it's the house to house, right? So if the defenders had prepared and prevented the attackers from going where they want to go, so you do that by, you know, if you look at the Battle of Ortona, which we wrote a case study about me and my friend Jason Giroux, they, they literally put explosives on buildings and knocked buildings down into the streets. What does that do? It creates a massive pile of rubble that nobody can get through. <clears throat> what does that do? Forces your attacker down the streets that you want him to go down, and then you can attack him. So I, I think it's pretty straightforward what could happen. Now, of these strategies, what will happen, nobody knows. There's no certainties in war. Hopefully we reach a diplomatic decision. Russia goes home. Uh, Ukraine wins. Uh, they achieve their goal. This isn't. This is not about destroying the other army on either side. Russia does not have to destroy all Ukrainian fighters to win. It just has to achieve its goal. Ukraine does not have to destroy Russian military in the open. It doesn't have to go out into the open and kill that convoy. It needs to hold terrain and prevent the enemy from doing what it wants in the urban battle. And it's about time. War time is huge. Russia doesn't have the time to bring in, even through the entire Russian army and encircled Kiev. And starve it out. That's a siege in my point. You can't do it. One, you can't even isolate a city that well. Even in the like the siege of Sierra, there was a tunnel where you could get supplies and out. Uh, just not possible. So hopefully this gives you a couple things to think about as we move forward and see the way that the Battle of Kiev happens. I honestly just don't think Russia bringing what it needs to do this battle based on my research. And again, now you know the like battles and what it would take to take Kiev. There's no certain there's no certainties in war. Nobody knows how this is going to go. But I'm telling you, the urban defense is the strongest, and it takes a lot to take a city. Again, you don't have to clear this city. You got to get into it. It still takes a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot to include a lot of training. Well, I hope you enjoyed the show. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern Wars 2 at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out IndieWise other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.